Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents... In 2012, director Quentin Tarantino and star Jamie Foxx gave the world an explosive new take on the Spaghetti Western. In 2020, we try a bourbon at 80 proof. The film is Django Unchained. The whiskey is Rebel Yell. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2012 film Django Unchained. The D is silent. The D is silent. Brad, how you doing today, man? Dude, it's good. So, like, I know that our podcast comes out every week, but Bob and I, you know, we kind of get ahead of the game a little bit, ahead of the curve, and it's actually been, like, a month since we recorded, and I miss you, man. Yeah, it's been a long time. This is the first episode that we've recorded since I've had my new baby, and it's it feels really good to be back in the studio again today, Brad. This is an exciting day, my friend. And this is also the first time back since our big Oscar Sunday showdown that we had, Brad. And it turns out that both of us ended up going 15 for 24. So we tied. I don't get to gloat today. Neither do you. Really? I mean, as the novice, I feel like I get to gloat a little bit. Like 15 out of 24 feels pretty good. It's not bad. And I think I told you up front, too, that like there's just no way to predict it. And I think that people like me who are like obsessed with the Oscars, we end up overthinking it. And so like it's kind of like March Madness in that way. You could just, you know, you could win your pool by just picking who has the best colors. I'm kind of curious, though. Do you feel like hitting like 20 out of 24 would be like a magic number of like, oh, that was a really good year? Oh, I think so. I think I had a year where I either hit 19 or 20, and that was the best I've ever done. And I felt pretty good because yeah, that, like that some would. of those some of those categories too, like short documentary. It's like I, I don't watch the documentary <laughs> shorts. Like who, you just guess based on what sounds the coolest and hope that you win. Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly what I did for a lot of the movies. <laughs> and Brad, this episode is actually a very momentous occasion for us. We are coming up on our one-year anniversary of launching the podcast. If you tuned into our preview episode, uh, which featured the movie Anchorman, then you know that we're actually already past a year of having the podcast up on your preferred platform. But this is a big deal for us because this episode, Django Unchained, is episode number 50 of our regular weekly episodes of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So we have done half a hundred episodes already, Brad. Wah, 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 wah. And actually, it's it's a really cool uh, kind of convergence of all everything that we've done so far. Because if you factor in all of our bonus episodes, then this is actually the 75th episode of Film and Whiskey. What? So, yeah, I know, right? I, I just want to say... Seriously, it's a film and whiskey nation. Thank you so much for going on this journey with us for our first year. You have hung in there with us for 50 movies and 75 episodes. We, I mean, 
I don't even know what to say, Brad. It's just it's amazing to think that in the last year we've gone from where we were when we started to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, what a blessing it is to have people who are faithfully following the podcast. Uh, you know, I first I just want to give a shout out to my mom and dad. You know, they just helped create <laughs> me into who I am today. Right. But but for real, this is this is super momentous. I man, I'm just so thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for you, Bob. This is really cool. Well, now the pressure's on, Brad. We've got to give these people a really good episode 50. So what do you say we get into talking about today's movie, Django Unchained? Yeah, let's get to it, man. Now, this is a movie that we have talked about a lot on this podcast before we've come to review it. You know, we, we've uh, we've done Inglorious Bastards. We've done Pulp Fiction. And throughout this podcast, I've been saying that Django Unchained is probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie, and it might be Tarantino's best film, in my opinion. And upon this rewatch for me, I have to say, I no longer think that it is as good as Pulp Fiction, but I will I will definitely say I think it's Tarantino's second best movie. I do think it still might be my favorite Tarantino movie. And Brad, I'm really excited and anxious to get into talking about this movie with you. So why don't we start with this question? Had you seen Django Unchained prior to this viewing? I had seen Django Unchained hey! prior to this viewing. Yeah, let it, let it be known. I am a movie watcher. <laughs> All right, so you've seen it at least one time. What what do you, what's your overall kind of opinion of this film as it ranks in Tarantino's, you know, uh catalog at this point? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I think at this point Tarantino is our most reviewed director. Mm. Is, is that correct? I think so. 3 movies in 2 seasons is is pretty frequent. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of like at the start of the show when we had reviewed like 4 Brad Pitt movies out of like our first 8 movies. It yeah. was pretty impressive. Yeah. But Django Unchained is, put simply, a spectacular movie. And and I don't just mean that in the fact that it's good. It is a spectacle. Like, everything in this movie is, it's not overdone to the point of, like, beating a dead horse. But, man, it's overdone just enough to push you out of your comfort zone. Hmm. And, like, everything in this movie is a spectacle. You know, even the way he uses the camera to do a fast zoom in on people's faces when things happen. Like, it's just all a big deal. I honestly, the first time I saw Django Unchained, I had never seen Gone with the Wind. But there were certain parallels to Gone with the Wind that I think Tarantino was trying to draw out with the melodrama of it all. I, the, it's a fascinating movie, Bob. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're we're going to get into talking about a lot of the intricacies of what you're what you're referring to, Brad. I want to talk about the performances. I want to talk about this script because I think it really is unique among all of Tarantino's screenplays. But before we get into any of that, we have to go to our favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. Now, if you're new to the podcast, Brad Explains is exactly what it sounds like. It's pretty self-explanatory. In a lot of cases, Brad hasn't seen the movie that we're reviewing for that week, and so we ask him to give a quick summary of what it is that he watched. And I will say, we might as well just put a spoiler alert here at the beginning, because we're about to get into everything that happens in Django Unchained. So if you have not seen it yet, it might be a good idea for you to hit pause, go watch the movie, and then come back and engage with what we say. But Brad, it's time for you to get up on that soapbox and let us know what you think of Django Unchained. The movie Django Unchained is about a young slave named Django, the D is silent, and his partner in crime, a German bounty hunter named Dr. King Schultz. These two gentlemen work together in order to 
collect bounties on wanted people. You know, it, it's reminiscent of the old wanted posters. They find the wanted posters, they go kill the people, they turn in the bodies, they make a lot of money. So initially they meet because Dr. Schultz needs Django to identify some men that he is hunting. And on the way, he learns that Django was separated from his young wife after they had run away together at a certain plantation. And so they form a partnership in which Django spends the entire winter learning from Dr. Schultz and training as a bounty hunter and collecting bounties. And in the spring, he will free the man and they will head to Mississippi in order to find his long gone wife. And so upon arrival in Mississippi, they find out that he has been sold to an eccentric, I would assume, million billionaire plantation owner named Candy. And so they head on down to his plantation and attempt to trick him into buying Django's long lost wife. And chaos and mayhem ensues. Yeah, I think that's a pretty great explanation of the movie. But Brad, where do you want to go from here? I think, we, you know, we could talk about Tarantino's script or the way that this movie is structured. We could talk about the performances. So I'm going to leave it up to you where we go first with this movie. Yeah, I mean, we might as well go the classic film of Whiskey Route. Let's talk about performances. So the star of the movie ostensibly is Jamie Foxx. And I feel like people gave Jamie Foxx a really hard time with this movie. I, I saw a lot of people that say they don't they don't really like Jamie Foxx in this movie. Um, originally, this part was supposed to go to Will Smith, and he turned it down, and Jamie Foxx was the second choice. I actually think Jamie Foxx is fantastic in this movie, and I think a lot of understanding his performance, you have to understand what Tarantino's doing in the script. The whole second half of the movie, Django is playing a character, so Jamie Foxx is playing like a character within a character, and Django basically tells the audience, I am playing this black slaver and I'm going to be putting on this completely different attitude towards everyone else in the movie. And you you see Django's attitude change once they arrive in Mississippi and they're going to Candyland. And I think it's just a really brilliant layered performance because even as Django is playing this person that he's not supposed to be, this black slaver, you see him kind of crack in moments. You know, when when he first sees his wife at Candyland, when they're at dinner together and he's trying to hide the fact that they know each other and keep putting on this facade. I really love Jamie Foxx in this movie. Brad, what did you think of him? Well, I, I'm interested. I hadn't known that Will Smith was supposed to play his role, so I kind of want to comment on that for a second. First off, if he had been in this, it would have been called Wild Wild West Part 2. <laughs> Second off, I just don't think I could have believed Will Smith in that role. Like, unfortunately... I feel like it would be as if they had cast Tom Hanks to play the role of the plantation owner, Candy. Hmm. Like, I just couldn't have believed Tom Hanks to be that cruel and mean. Whereas, like, the two people that they cast, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jamie Foxx, like, both of them have maybe not the chops to pull it off. I, I would say Leo has the chops to pull it off. But Jamie Foxx was definitely playing more in character for himself as an actor. Like when I think about Jamie Foxx as an actor, he often plays the gritty, quiet, determined, slightly crazy types. Hmm. And so it made sense for me to have Jamie Foxx in that role. I just don't think I could take Will Smith seriously in this role. Yeah, I think Will Smith's strengths are that he's he's really charming. And that's kind of like what what he does in movies. He like gets you on his side no matter who he's playing. And the character of Django, I don't know that it requires that level of like charm. Like we have to see Django at his most beaten down at the beginning of the movie, at his most frightened. And then 
the strength of Jamie Foxx in this movie is that when Django does kind of have to portray that sense of like bravado or arrogance, it comes across that way. And I think that Will Smith is so charming that it kind of it probably would have undermined the performance when we're supposed to be viewing him as like this black slaver that all the whites and all the slaves hate having Will Smith in that part. It really wouldn't work because he would still be doing that thing Will Smith does, where even as a bad guy or a guy playing a bad guy, he'd be too charming for it. Right. And and Jamie Foxx just pulls it off perfectly. The scene that I'm thinking of is when they're on their way to Candyland and Jamie Foxx just keeps pushing Leonardo DiCaprio's buttons. You know, he keeps antagonizing him and Christoph Waltz stops and he and he wants to have a conference with his you know, partner in crime. And so they're talking and he goes, listen, man, I'm intriguing him. And Christoph Waltz is starting to lose his cool. He's like, look, man, like you don't know what you're getting us into. Don't get so carried away with your retribution. You lose sight of why we're here. You think I lost sight of that? Yes, I do. Stop antagonizing Candy. You're going to blow this whole charade or more than likely get us both killed. And I, for one, don't intend to die in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, USA. I'm not antagonizing. I'm intriguing him. You're you're yelling abuse at these poor slaves? I recall a man who had me kill another man in front of his son. And he didn't bat an eye. You remember that? Of course I remember. What you said was, was that this is my world. And in my world, you got to get dirty. So that's what I'm doing. I'm getting dirty. And I think that 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 shows exactly why they needed Jamie Foxx in this role, is that he just has that cold-hearted demeanor that, that can't be passed up when, like you said, we're looking for a black slaver, the most hated of human beings in that era, in that geography. One of the things I really love about Jamie Foxx's performance, and again, I think a lot of the things with this movie is I, I'm not entirely sure if I want to give the credit to the actors or to Tarantino, because I think this is Tarantino's most mature movie. As a filmmaker, as a writer, I think he takes the subject matter seriously in a way that you don't even see him do uh, with Inglorious Bastards. And he gives the characters these really, really subtle and yet profound moments. And the scene that comes to mind with me when I'm thinking about Jamie Foxx's character is that really early scene where he's just met Schultz and they go into that saloon and he says, you know, go get the sheriff. And they're waiting on the sheriff to arrive. And Schultz is explaining what it means to be a bounty hunter. And while they're doing that, Schultz gets them each a beer and they sit down at the table. They start drinking their beers and the camera lingers on Jamie Foxx, on Django. And you watch him take his first sip of beer and you see him just kind of nod his head like, huh, so that's what that tastes like. And it's this really brilliant moment where as an audience member, you're sharing this moment with Django and both of you understand this is the first time this guy's ever had a beer before. He's probably seen it and he's wondered what it tastes like. And now he's getting his first sip. And Tarantino doesn't have to write any dialogue around that. He doesn't have to beat it over your head. And I think that allowing characters like Django, like Jamie Foxx to have moments like that, it really just adds to the emotion of this movie. And I think Jamie Foxx is really good at adding those little touches to his character. Yeah. And I'll also say that I think that Jamie Foxx is charming in his own way. You know, I think about when they find the first three brothers that they're trying to kill 
and Schultz asks him if he's sure that the guy riding mm-hmm. off is mm-hmm. the third brother. Mm-hmm. And he goes, are you positive? And Jamie Foxx doesn't say anything. And he goes, I asked, are you positive? He says, I don't know what positive means. And like, A, I love that Christoph Waltz is just patient with him and says, it means, are you sure? And he shoots him and he falls and he goes, I'm positive that man's dead. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> and line. And it's just, it's such a great line and it's charming. And like, you almost sense that there's this innocence in Django's character that lies underneath all of the hatred and tension and suffering that he's seen. Yeah, for sure. And so I think this is a really natural way to segue into talking about Christoph Waltz as King Schultz. Christoph Waltz had broken through with Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. And his character in that movie, Hans Landa, is, I mean, it's an all-time villain. I think he's just incredible. When we look back on Christoph Waltz's career, that will be the performance that we remember. But in a lot of ways, I think this performance by Christoph Waltz is just as good. It's it's really subtle. It's really layered. And it might be the only character that I can think of off the top of my head in the whole Tarantino universe who is just a genuinely good person. And I think the first time I saw this movie, I kept expecting something to happen. I kept expecting Schultz to end up screwing over Django somehow because I'm like, oh, this is a Tarantino movie. He can't be that, you know, that simplistic of a character. And yet he kind of is. He's just a genuinely good hearted person towards Django and he never betrays him. And I find that really, really refreshing in a Tarantino film. Yeah. And even the even the one thing that he could do that could be almost considered an accidental betrayal when he shoots candy at the end of the movie, he just looks back at Django and he just goes, I'm sorry, man, but I couldn't help myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, instead of helping him get away scot-free, he kind of gets him into a whole lot of trouble. But, you know, what kind of a Tarantino film would it be if they didn't have a massive shootout at the end? So I love, love, love Christoph Waltz in this movie. I just get this feeling that Christoph Waltz just acted his freaking butt off in this movie. He takes care of Django in so many different ways. He's very loving and caring. He's patient with him. And yet, at the same time, he's a ruthless, cold-hearted bounty hunter. And the the contrast between the two, is, the lines are always blurred. And you're always kind of like, man, like I don't understand this character. He's very kind-hearted. And yet, he just murders people for a living and makes thousands of dollars off of them. Right. You know, he says at the very start of the movie, I am in the business of corpses in the same way that the slavers are in the business of bodies. And you're like, dang, this dude's crazy. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Brad. And I probably should qualify what I said a little bit. It's not like he's completely blameless. You know, he definitely is involved in this kind of sordid trade. But at the same time, I think underlying all of that is the the sympathetic parts of his character. And I think that's the thing that I really love about this movie is that normally Tarantino wouldn't go in on having a character that's that sympathetic and that remains sympathetic, you know, even in his death. We don't look back on him at the end of the movie in a different way than we looked at him earlier in the film. It is such a departure for Tarantino. And after Inglorious Bastards, I think there's a version of Django Unchained that's even more kind of irreverent and plays up the sort of cartoonishness of the violence. I was watching this movie with my wife last night, and after a a period of time, she was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to walk out. And she's seen it before, so she knows what's coming. But I told her even before she left the room, like part of what I love about this movie is that Tarantino knows when to make the violence really cartoony and like over the top bloody and gory and 
And then he also knows when to make the violence realistic because he knows that the effect is going to be even more profound if he does that. You know, I'm thinking specifically of the the scenes of the Mandingo fighting and the dogs being sicked on the runaway slave D'Artagnan. They're really hard to watch. They're like stomach stomach churningly hard to watch. But those are things that really happened in the American South. And I think Tarantino is very, very wise to let those things play out in a realistic way because they have way more of an effect on me emotionally as an audience member than if he had just kind of gleefully, you know, went overboard with the violence there. I see him here really handling this material about as sensitively as Tarantino is capable of doing. And I think he does a pretty commendable job with the violence, you know, revolving around the slave trade. Yeah, I mean, the cartoonish violence really does come in at the end when Django is just going ham on all these, you know, white plantation workers. But like, it does get to the point where you're just like, this is ridiculous. You know, when I'm thinking specifically of when he shoots the sister of Candy and, you know, there's clearly a harness on her that just whips her back into the room. Right. And you're you're kind of like, man, like, Tarantino is so meticulous of a director. You're like, he clearly chose to make it obvious that that's not how she would have fallen if she had just gotten shot. And it's so cartoonish and overstated that it's things like that that I go, man, is is Tarantino like a good director or is he just crazy and doing whatever the heck he wants? Yeah, but then I think it's balanced out really well, like I said, with with some of the more realistic elements. And this is what I think we were missing in Inglorious Bastards, because it jumped between these character groups so much that you never really spent enough time with any of the characters to care about them. Whereas this movie is very, very straightforward. Tarantino isn't doing any of his sort of chronological jumping around in time that he's known for. This is, in a sense, his most conventional screenplay. It's just like point A to point B, you follow these specific characters, you know, and there's a lot of side characters, but it's really about Django, Django's wife, King Schultz and Calvin Candy. And you watch those characters interactions with each other. And I think that by kind of putting those restrictions on himself and by saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to be as irreverent about slavery as I was about World War Two. I think it really serves this movie well because he gets those opportunities to do the cartoonish violence. And it's really satisfying when when Django is just annihilating these people. But then he also knows when it's time to be serious about it. And I think it works really well and he balances those moments really well. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with you, Bob. He has a he just has a talent for telling stories. I, I think that's Tarantino's biggest strength is that he gives you characters that you're interested in, that are convoluted, that have, you know, varied interests, and he tells their story and he does such a good job of it. Uh, but before we move on, I'm kind of curious, what did you think about Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in this movie? So let me say this. When Christoph Waltz won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this movie, I was really happy because I think that between the two of them, Christoph Waltz probably had the harder role. He's in the movie more and you get to know him more, but it's also a more kind of subtle performance. Whereas DiCaprio comes in and from moment one, it's like his intensity level is at 100 and he's the big bad, like he's supposed to be kind of chewing scenery and overshadowing everybody else in the scene. And I think DiCaprio does it really, really well. I appreciate the performance now more than I did, I think, in 2012, because it's in the more quiet moments when it's just about like how DiCaprio looks at someone that I think the performance really shines. 
not so much when he's like yelling and screaming at people. And I do think that DiCaprio handles this material really, really well. But if we're, you know, if we were the Academy and we were voting on who to give the award to, I do think I, I still prefer Christoph Waltz's character to DiCaprio's character. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. I think that Christoph turns in a more nuanced performance, perhaps. But man, I was this watch through, you know, the first time through, I was like, man, Leo did a really good job. This watch through, I was really blown away with Leo. I thought he turned in a spectacular performance. I was really intrigued with the way he treated other people in this movie. The way he interacts with Samuel Jackson's character is fascinating. Um, I, I thought it was interesting how Tarantino uses, you know, Steven as a character. I just was very interested in how deep Leo went to become a Southern plantation owner. Yeah, and I think that it's necessary for him to be that over the top because the movie kind of, it, it, it's almost like it's split into thirds. I would say like more more like two halves, but kind of into thirds in that the first half of the movie is almost like this kind of Butch and Sundance, like fun, rollicking time that you're you're going along with Schultz and Django as they're learning to, you know, to be friends with each other. And he's learning the the bounty hunter business. And then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to go to Candyland and we're going to put this plan in place. And the whole movie shifts tonally, thematically. It's like a different movie and it works really, really well. But it works because you have DiCaprio kind of ratcheting up the tension from scene to scene. And I'm thinking specifically about that scene where they've cornered this runaway slave D'Artagnan in a tree and they're going to let the dogs take him. And Christoph Waltz almost blows his cover in that he stands up and says, like, I'll, I'll buy him. I'll give you five hundred dollars for him because he doesn't want to see this poor guy die. And Django has to keep playing his character, which is I am the pocketbook for this guy that's looking to buy a Mandingo fighter. And he says, no, we're not going to buy him. You can you can do whatever you want with him. And DiCaprio takes it as an affront. And he goes over to Django and says, you you shouldn't have a problem with me doing with my property what I want. And they let the dogs on him. And it's super hard to watch. But all through that scene, what I love about the way Tarantino uses the violence there is that interspersed with the dogs, you know, ripping this guy apart, they cut back to Calvin Candy. And he is just staring at Django with this unbroken stare which is like, this is my way of exerting my power and my dominance over you. And it's this battle of wits that the two characters have. And I think that's especially where DiCaprio shines in this movie, is in those really subtle ways that he tries to get one over on Schultz and Django, and you have that that wonderful kind of power dynamic happening. Yeah, you just see him in his element. You know, he says it at some point in the movie, but this is my territory. This is my land. I run this place. I am Candyland. And you're going to do things my way here. And he just, like you said, he plays that power dynamic so, so well. And, and I think in a similar fashion, you see throughout the entire movie, Christoph Waltz play this character of, I'm just an innocent man that is trying to bring justice to this world. And he kind of plays this bumbling older man who can be trusted. But man, that belies the cold-hearted killer that's just murdering people across the country for money. And so you you kind of get these characters that just delve deeply into who they are. And I, once again, you know, you could probably say this about any movie, but if you don't have these three actors in these roles, I just don't think you have a very good movie. 
I mean, Tarantino just nailed his casting for this movie. Yeah, and I think that that extends to even some of the smaller characters in the movie. And before we go to our break, Brad, I just want to talk about two of these performances. The first one being Carrie Washington as Broomhilda, uh, Django's wife, who I think really has kind of a thankless role because for a good portion of the movie, she doesn't really have any dialogue. You only see her in flashbacks and as sort of these ghostly apparition visions that Django's having as they approach Candyland. But I found her performance to be so powerful, especially in the flashback sequence where you actually see them try to run away and you can see her just trembling and shaking. And, you know, she gives Django a kiss that's so passionate because you can see how terrified she is. And for a performance that has very little to do, I thought she was great in it. Yeah, she was probably my favorite of the supporting characters in this movie, you know, outside of the main three that we've talked about. She just has this ability to command the screen whenever she's on it, even when it's just during Django's kind of like visions of her standing in the field as he rides up to Candyland or things like that. She just kind of gets on the screen and and just instantly she's like a magnet. Your attention is drawn to her. And she is so convincing as someone who loves and cares for Django, and yet it's fearful. She plays so many different emotions so, so well. I absolutely love her performance. And then the second person I'd like to talk about is Don Johnson as Big Daddy. Now, he's only in like the first 45 minutes of the movie, but he is so good. And his character is played for laughs. And part of what I love about what his character represents is like, I don't think I can think of a Tarantino film where he lets the gags go on so long. Like, he writes at least two scenes just for Don Johnson's character that are like over-the-top comedy scenes. And the first one is when they first ride up to his plantation. The second one is when they're doing that sort of like proto-Ku Klux Klan meeting and they're complaining about like they can't see out of the bags. And they're both really, really funny. But Tarantino's using those moments to kind of demonstrate like... These people are idiots. And I think that's when when Calvin Candy comes in and presents a real threat and a real danger. You see the difference between people like Big Daddy and people like Calvin Candy. But having Don Johnson play that role, you know, that scene where they first go up to his plantation and he has to explain to all his slaves that Django is free and you can't treat him the way you would treat a slave. Bettina Sugar, could you take Django there and take him around the grounds here and show him all the pretty stuff? As you please, be there. Oh, Mr. Bennett, I must remind you, Django is a free man. He cannot be treated like a slave. He, uh, within the bounds of good taste, he must be treated as an extension of myself. Understood, Schultz. Bettina Sugar? Yes, sir. Django isn't a slave. Django is a free man, you understand? You can't treat him like any of the other around here because he ain't like any of the other around here. You got it? You want I should treat him like white folks? No. That's not what I said. Then I don't know what you want, big daddy. Yes, I can see that. And, and then his slave asks him, do you want do you want me to treat him like white folks? And he just goes, no. And Christoph Waltz is shaking his head. Yes, <laughs> it is such a funny moment because Tarantino's using it to point out how stupid and hypocritical and convoluted they have to twist their ethics and their morals and their southern hospitality to accommodate this guy that otherwise they'd be treating like a slave. And I just think it's absolutely brilliant. And everything Don Johnson does in that role works for me. I don't know. What did you think of him as Big Daddy? 
So I really love him as Big Daddy. He, like, honestly, he is the embodiment of, like, Colonel Sanders. And then all of a sudden you're like, but he's also part of the KKK. And he's a little bit ridiculous. And like you said, he has no grounding in reality. He doesn't understand how his morality and ethics actually affect human beings. And it's a really brutal performance in that fact. I will say this. My least favorite part of the movie is the extended scene that Jonah Hill is in where they're talking about whether or not they put on the bags and, oh, well, who made these bags anyways? And if I had known you just had to cut two holes in a sheet, then I would have done it myself. You know, I watched my wife work all day getting 30 bags together for you ungrateful sons of And all I can hear is criticize, criticize, criticize. So now, don't ask me your mind for nothing. Now look, let's not forget why we're here. We got a killing over that hill there. And we got to make a lesson out of it. Okay, I'm confused. Are the bags on or off? I think we all think the bags was a nice idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not pointing in the fingers, they could have been done better. So how about no bags this time, but next time we do the bags right, and then we go full regalia. For some reason, that scene just dragged on and on and on. And while I think Tarantino can drag on scenes that have tension in them, that scene had absolutely no tension in it. The comedy wasn't that funny. It honestly felt like a relic of 2012 comedy and humor that I just kind of was like meh with. Hmm. So in that regards, I didn't enjoy that scene for Don Johnson very much. But overall, I really liked his performance a lot. Yeah, I can get behind that. Brad, I think that we both really love this movie. I'm excited to see where we go with the second half of the episode. But I think for now, we need to hit pause and try this rebel yell. What do you say? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Rebel Yell. Now, this is a whiskey that we've been trying to work into the podcast all season. But it's kind of hard when you have a whiskey called Rebel Yell. And we're doing two separate movies about the Civil War and slavery this season. So initially we had it synced up with Gone with the Wind. And I thought that was like a really insensitive point to schedule it. So we moved it to Django Unchained. I don't think that we should hold the title of this whiskey against it. I'm actually really excited to try it because I've heard a lot of people say that this is a really good budget whiskey. Brad, you actually picked up this bottle. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, Bob. So Rebel Yell is a bourbon. It's a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey that comes out of Lux Row Distillers. Uh, it is an 80 proof whiskey. So it's on you know the low end of proof that you can get and still be called bourbon. But you're right. It does have pretty good reviews for being the price that it is. Yeah. What I understand about it is that this is a weeded bourbon. So it's going to be kind of in the same vein as like a Weller. We've had quite a few weeded bourbons on the show. I I tend to like weeded bourbons a lot. And Lux Row is a really interesting distiller. You guys should check them out if you get a chance to. 
Rebel Yell has quite a few different variants. There is the the standard 80 proof Rebel Yell. There's a 100 proof. There's a single barrel. I think now they make a flavored version, like a root beer Rebel Yell. So there's a lot of different ones that you can get. We decided to just stick with the standard Rebel Yell, and we've both poured it out in front of us. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this Rebel Yell? Honestly, I'm picking up a little bit of vanilla. I am picking up uh, maybe a hint of caramel. Honestly, it smells like a very light bourbon. You know, like you said, with that weed, that heavily weeded side of it, it's not going to have quite as many strong caramely notes that you would get on a traditional bourbon. When I first poured it out, I thought it had a really nice kind of deep peanut butter kind of smell to it, almost like what we picked up on the Henry McKenna. And you're right. It was a a lighter, more subtle note because it's only 80 proof. But I was like, oh, man, this is going to be good. It's got some complex kind of nuttiness going on. And then that very quickly went away. You know, this has been sitting out here for a couple minutes now, and now I'm not really picking up anything except just a kind of vague sweetness. I like it, but I can't really place it. It doesn't really have a lot of depth or complexity on the nose, but I really liked having that note of peanut butter on the front, and I think it bodes well for the rest of our tasting. And for me, I kind of have to take into effect that this is 80 proof. So I wasn't expecting to smell anything, and I think to have some of those more subtle notes on it is a really good sign. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven. I'm not picking up quite as much. I do see a hint to that peanut butter that you were talking about. But honestly, for for what this bourbon costs, I'm impressed with the nose so far. I'm going to give it a seven. All right, let's take a sip. Bob, that's nice. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's not too thin, which I really expected it to be thin, but it, it covers the tongue nicely. It's kind of oily. And then you swallow it. And on the back end, there's this really interesting flavor. And I, I don't know quite how, how to explain it, but it's like this sensation you get right after you swallow like a Coca-Cola. Like there's almost like some kind of fizz, like like a carbonation and those those kind of Coke spices that come off of it. It really does remind me of a cola, and I like that a lot. This is a really refreshing whiskey. It's not harsh at all, and it's kind of unique in the flavor profile, like a kind of a root beer, like a sarsaparilla maybe, and not really much of that peanut butter. But Brad, what do you think of this? I mean, am I wrong in saying that this tastes kind of unique, like we haven't had anything that tastes like this yet? Yeah, honestly, it it's a really impressive uh, specimen of a whiskey. In the fact that it is super refreshing. Like you said, I don't know if I've ever had a whiskey that was 80 proof that had a unique enough flavor to make me, you know, pay attention to it. And at the same time, you know, usually I think about whiskey and you think about, oh, I want this strong, you know, barrel proof whiskey that's going to singe the hairs off my chest. And while that's often true, these 80 proof whiskeys, one of their strengths is the fact that it doesn't singe the hair off your chest, that it's an easy sipper, that it's something you could just, you know, enjoy on a hot summer day. And this is one of those whiskeys. It's watered down a little bit. Yes. But man, the flavor is good and interesting, and it's easy to drink. I am a big fan of this. Yeah, I like this a lot, and I was not expecting to, to be quite honest with you. I took another sip, and I think those notes of cola that I'm getting, what's really coming out is like a cherry cola, cherry Coke, cherry Pepsi, whatever your preferred one is. But it's got these notes of like a like a black cherry, almost an artificial kind of black cherry. I'm not saying that this tastes like something that's like that's really naturally occurring. 
but I like it. And like you said, it's crisp. It's refreshing. It's something that I'm not used to tasting on a whiskey, and I kind of like that. I'm going to give this an eight on the taste, and I think I'm also going to give this an eight on the finish. I, Bob, I was literally just thinking the same thing. I, I'm going to give it an eight for both as well. I am very impressed with this whiskey so far. All right, so that brings us to overall balance. Now, that's nose, taste, and finish put together. I don't know that this is the most well-balanced whiskey because I wasn't picking up those sort of like cola notes on the nose. It was more of that nutty, dark, peanut butter kind of nose. And yet, I still think it's a fairly well-balanced whiskey because I enjoyed every part of it all the way through. There was nothing that stood out as overly harsh. Um, The finish is very short and very refreshing. I think the whiskey is pleasantly sweet, but not like overly sickeningly sweet. I think I'll give this a seven on balance. Yeah, there there are some issues on the balance that overall I think they could improve. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a six and a half on balance. All right, and then that takes us to value. Now, in the state of Ohio, uh, this will run you about seventeen dollars for a fifth. That might be just a little bit below the national average, but you're not gonna find yourself paying more than probably eighteen dollars for this. I think this is a really good value. This is about the same price as we paid for the Evan Williams 1783, which neither of us really cared for. Now, this is lower proof, and you know I would probably call this a, a simplistic whiskey, but I really enjoyed the taste of it, and I would love to have this on my shelf. I think I'm going to give this like an 8.5 on value, Brad. Yeah, I'm actually going to give it a 9 out of 10 on value. This is one of the best sub-$20 whiskeys that I've ever had, and honestly... I feel like in the last, you know, four or five months of the podcast, we've definitely strayed into the more expensive range of whiskeys, and I feel like we've been a little bit spoiled by the quality of whiskey that we've gotten. And so when we had that Evan Williams 1783 and I was unimpressed with it, I was kind of genuinely worried. I was like, man, have I been ruined for like cheap whiskey that costs less than $20? You know, if I went back and tried the benchmark, would I give it like a 10 out of 50? And so I'm very happy to realize that, no, like, there's still good whiskeys that are being made under $20 that I really, really enjoy and would genuinely give a high score to. So I'm, you know, color me impressed. This is a good, good whiskey. Yeah, I agree. And that puts me out to a 39 out of 50. Yeah, Bob, we're right there together. I'm at a 38.5. Our average for this is a 38.75 or a 77.5 out of 100. This is a much higher score than I would have anticipated before we tried it. But you take that value into account, and for for less than 20 bucks, there are not a lot of bottles that you can get that I would recommend over this. It's a really pleasant, easy-to-drink whiskey. It tastes great. It's very sweet, and it's refreshing. And that's kind of all you can ask for for a whiskey that you get for $17. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we've rated other whiskeys, you know, that cost more money and might actually be a little bit better than this whiskey. We've rated them maybe at a 34 or five or six, but you have to take into account value. And that that does change the overall score beyond what just flavor will do. So, yeah, I would say this is one of the best whiskeys I've had when you take price into consideration. Well, Brad, this seems like it's going to be a very positive episode of Film and Whiskey. We, we both like the movie. We both like the whiskey. Why don't we ride this vibe into the second half of the show and keep talking about Django Unchained? Let's get to it. 
All right, so that was Rebel Yell 80 Proof, a whiskey that we both really enjoyed. But we're going to get back into talking about Django Unchained. And I think the first thing we should mention, Brad, is that this is very obviously Quentin Tarantino's ode to the Spaghetti Western. And I think you you see it from, like you were talking about earlier, those those really quick zooms where the camera mimics what you would have seen in those old Italian Westerns. And I think you also see it in the way that Tarantino kind of uses the soundtrack a little bit. That very first opening song about Django, and then you also get an introductory song about uh, King Schultz. I think they're really, really great. I think it's a cool touch. Did you think the soundtrack worked? Well, I think that the beauty of the soundtrack is that the movie grips you from the very opening scene, and it does it because of the music. You know, there. when you look at the runtime for this movie, it's two hours and 45 minutes, and there's not much credits time there. It's like a two hour and 42 minute movie. And so you look at that, you know, longer runtime for, for most movies, and you go, man, there's going to be some boring parts in there that I have to get through. But oh my gosh, from the opening scene with that, with that ballad about Django, and it draws you into the story, it, it starts to inform you about what's happening in the, in this world. I was absolutely gripped and drawn in. And so for me, the the spaghetti western touches like those ballads introducing the characters or even the scene when they transition from the first half of the movie to the second half of the movie when it just says, you know, the text comes up on the screen and it says it was a profitable winter for Dr. Schultz and Django. But when the snows receded, they traveled to and then it splits and it says, Greenville, Mississippi. And and it's just it's classic. It's a it's a love letter to spaghetti westerns, but it doesn't not fit the movie. You know, I, I think some directors will try to give shout outs to their influencers, you know, the people and the directors that helped make them the directors that they are today, but it often will feel clanky or misplaced. You don't get that in Django Unchained. You, it, it feels so authentic and so real that it just works so well to draw you into the story of Django and of Dr. Schultz. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've seen a lot of people complain over the years about the soundtrack because, you know, you've got like a hip hop song or two in there. And it just it's never bothered me because I think Tarantino uses those kind of anachronistic touches so well like they fit the the thematic elements of the movie so well and actually the soundtrack of this movie provides my favorite moment in any Tarantino movie ever and it's so small that it's like you might if you blink you miss it but they start playing Jim Croce's I Got a Name which is just a great song in general and you see Django kind of getting his horse ready to go ride out with King once they decide they're going to partner up And he throws the old saddle off of his horse and he puts this new saddle on that you can tell King has bought for him. And it's got his initial of D like like embossed into it. And right when they show that in the soundtrack of I Got a Name, Jim Croce saying, I got a name, I got a name. And he says, and I'll carry it with me like my daddy did. You see Jamie Foxx just kind of really gently like caress that letter. And for me, it really hit home because it's this really subtle reminder that like Django might not have even known his dad. Django might not be carrying a name that his dad even gave him. This might be just a slave name that some plantation owners gave him at some point. And it really adds this layer of like an emotional punch that when they ride out of those barn doors and you watch them ride towards the mountains, it's this really liberating, freeing moment 
because Django is finally getting to kind of step into his identity and like claim a name for himself. Like, yes, I am Django. I have a name. I matter. And I think that that is why I love this movie so much because Tarantino is operating on this really mature level that for all the cartoonishness, for all the violence, there's heart behind this movie that you don't typically see in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, Bob. And for me, one of the songs that impacted me most was a song that was written for the movie you know, called 100 Black Coffins. And as Django is riding his way up to the plantation and you see these slaves in the field, you hear the the chorus repeating, you know, I need 100 black coffins. And it just so deeply impacts you in the sense that, like, you just need not hundreds, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of coffins for these black people who have been enslaved and tortured and murdered by these plantation owners. It's a brutally difficult movie to watch, and the music never lets you off the hook, and that's what I love about it. And I think that Tarantino uses the music, like I said, to kind of advance the themes that he's putting forth in this movie. And when I look at the way this movie is set up, when I look at the way that Tarantino writes the movie, this is one of the few movies that I can tell that Tarantino really loves his characters. I think he, you know, he loves all the things he writes, But I think in a lot of movies, he tries to make characters that are just really, really cool. You know, you're talking about Jules in Pulp Fiction or some of the guys in Reservoir Dogs. But in this movie, I think he genuinely has affection for King Schultz and for Django. And there's moments where he he has these kind of like visual gags that remind us that Django is a, a recently freed slave. Like when Schultz tells him, you can pick out your costume that the character is going to wear. And he's like, you mean I could pick out my own clothes? And then the next shot is Django in this like ridiculous blue getup that one of the slaves at Big Daddy's plantation ends up asking him, like, you mean you dress yourself like that? It's not a joke that's at Django's expense. It's a joke that like we're there with him. And we know that like this man has never been allowed to pick out his own clothes before. So of course he's going to go for the one that looks like the most opulent and over the top. And those sorts of jokes work because Tarantino loves these characters and we do too. And that's not something that you often see in his movies. Yeah. And yet I think that Tarantino draws you into a depth of suffering with this movie, with the the way he portrays violence, that you're simultaneously in love with these characters. And yet it almost makes you miss the depravity of what's going on in the South with the fact that you care so deeply about the characters. And I I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I just mean to say that the violence in this movie, for me, it was terribly psychological. You know, when you watch the Mandingos fighting, you know, the first time you meet Calvin Candy, it is brutal. They don't shy away from anything in that fight. You know, and then later when when they sick the dogs on the runaway slave... And then late, even later than that, when they have Dr. Schultz remembering those dogs ripping into the slave, you're not given an excuse to stay away from the violence. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as you love Django, you're forced to see his wife in a hot box opened up while she's laying in this this 
oven, basically. Yeah. yeah, this oven. She's laying there, and then they douse her with water, and she screams as they carry her off. For some reason, the violence in this movie, at the end of the movie, the violence is very visceral in the sense that you see human viscera flying across the stage. But the psychological violence of seeing black people oppressed and tortured and murdered, that was really difficult for me. I I don't know how, how it affected you, Bob, but I struggled with this movie in that sense. Well, I'm going to keep going back to what I think is Tarantino as his most mature as a filmmaker. There have been occasions where Tarantino has been asked, you know, why do you have such gratuitous violence? And he just kind of says, like, because it's so much fun. And he does it to antagonize people. But I really do think that in some ways he he does think that it's just fun to have this sort of cartoonish over the top violence. What I really appreciate about this film is that he reserves the cartoony violence, like what you're talking about with viscera flying everywhere, for the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. And at the end of the movie, it's this really kind of satisfying, vindictive violence that is cathartic in a way. And I think that he knows better than to do that when it when the violence needs to have emotional weight to it. And I would I would actually point to this movie as his least gratuitous movie in in that I think almost all of the violence in this movie is absolutely necessary for the plot. And it's absolutely necessary for us to see the horrors of what Django and Schultz are getting into as they kind of spiral downward into this abyss of like, it's going to be hard to get out of Candyland. And the violence is used for psychological purposes. Just like you said, Calvin Candy uses it to demonstrate his dominance over Django in some of those moments. And it's really, really hard to watch. But I also appreciate that, as crazy as it sounds, Tarantino was very sensitive in how he used it. This movie came out a year before 12 Years a Slave, which ended up winning Best Picture. It was critically lauded. And the critics really praised that movie's realistic depiction of violence towards slaves and how it it forced you to kind of watch what was going on. And I don't think that this movie gets enough credit because it's Tarantino. We always assume the violence is over the top and gratuitous and cartoonish. But I think that Tarantino does a really, really good job with showing things that actually happened to real human beings and doing it in a way that forces you as a viewer to deal with it. It's not just there for a joke. It's not just there for catharsis. It's there for us to wrestle with. And I think that he he deserves more credit as a director for putting us in those situations because they are necessary to adding that emotional weight to the movie. Well, and one of the things I love most about this movie is the character of Dr. Schultz because I think he represents a lot of Americans in the 2000s. And this, the scenes that I'm specifically thinking of is at the start of the movie – Dr. Schultz says while they're drinking their beers, you know, Django's first beer, he says, oh, well, I abhor slavery. I absolutely detest the practice. But you can tell that there isn't a large body of experience with what slavery actually means for the slave in the weight of his words. You know, he almost says it flippantly, like, oh, I abhor slavery. It's a terrible thing. I must admit I'm at a bit of a quandary when it comes to you. On one hand, I despise slavery. On the other hand, I need your help. If you're not in a position to refuse, all the better. So for the time being, I'm going to make this slavery malarkey work to my benefit. Still. Having said that, 
I feel guilty. And it, it, it reminds me of how Americans today would be like, oh, well, yes, I've, of course I hate slavery. Slavery is bad. But until you sit down and you actually watch a human being torn apart by dogs or you watch a human being being forced to bash another human's head in with a hammer after gouging his eyes out in order to not die yourself. There's a weight to that that hits Dr. Schultz, and they show that at the end of the movie when he's sitting there after they've been, you know, quote-unquote defeated by Calvin Candy. You see Dr. Schultz dwelling, you know, not on losing $12,000. He's dwelling on a, a, of a young man being ripped apart by dogs. And that's what galls him to action. And I think that Tarantino just does a masterful job of calling the audience out and saying, look, man, you don't understand what this really means until you see the consequences of slavery. And I think it's a beautiful thing that he does. And I think it's amazing that he uses Schultz to kind of fill in for the audience to show the transition from almost a blissful ignorance to a grim reality of what slavery actually means. And I think it's time for us to kind of move into our scores, Brad, but let me segue us into that by saying this. I think that is what Inglorious Bastards was missing. I think that that movie needed to have a little more emotional weight where they do show, you know, they, you have that opening scene where the Nazis murder the Jews that are hiding under the floorboards, but there's very little in the way of demonstrating why we should actually care about these specific characters in that film. And I think Tarantino in that movie wanted to be edgy and he wanted to show like, look how violent I can be towards Nazis because they deserve it. And so I, c I could do what I want. And in this movie, I think that he goes the opposite direction, which is like, no, these specific people deserve punishment. And I'm going to show you why they deserve punishment, because I'm going to make you watch what they do to our heroes. And what I really love about this film is that Inglorious Bastards is revisionist history. They, you know, they murder Hitler. They end the war. This movie is revisionist history a little bit, but it's also very plausible. Django doesn't end the practice of slavery. Django just gets what's his and he rescues his wife and he rides off to freedom. And I think that by keeping the scale a little bit smaller like that and telling a more intimate story, I think this movie just succeeds in all of the areas that Inglorious Bastards doesn't. And so, Brad, I'm I'm anxious to hear your final score on this movie. And would you recommend? Bob, you know, last week I gave The Sixth Sense a 10 out of 10. And I kind of came into this week thinking, man, is this the week that Film & Whiskey finally gives two films in a row a 10 out of 10? And I came very, very close. I, I'm going to give Django a 9.5 out of 10. I think it's a nearly perfect movie. I don't think it's quite as good as Pulp Fiction. But man, oh man, this is an amazing movie. You know, there's a few scenes like the KKK scene that I struggle with and a few other things. But overall, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And you said at the very start, this is Tarantino's second best movie. And it's very close for me. I, I would not put this very far behind Pulp Fiction. And honestly, I would probably recommend this movie more than Pulp Fiction because of the fact that we need to deal with what slavery and racism means in this country. And I think it's an important movie for our time. Yeah, I completely agree, Brad. You know, I, I have been talking this movie up for almost two full seasons now. And so I'm I want to give it a 10 out of 10. But watching it back last night, I do think that it's 
It's just slightly imperfect, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I can't think of any scenes in particular that I'd want to eliminate from it, but I am going to give it a nine and a half. And yet, just like you said, I think I might be more prone to recommend this movie than I would Pulp Fiction. I think this is a much more straightforward movie. It's Tarantino working within a set of, uh, of constraints that he put on himself, and it's it's probably his most focused movie. It probably has the least amount of fat on it of all of his movies. I just don't think it's quite as great as Pulp Fiction, but I would absolutely recommend this film. And that means that we have both given it a 9.5 out of 10. But we want to know what you think. So please, if you want to engage with us about Django Unchained, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or if you want to give us a call, let us know what you have to think about Django Unchained. We will play your voicemail on air. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back with an all-timer, the 1975 Best Picture winner, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 